Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. So, how are you? I'm okay, Katie. I think I'm in a little better shape than you because you look pretty tired. Uh, well, <laughs> I gotta say, so two things on that subject. Yes, do. For... I would say for the better part of the entire month, yeah, I've been watching Lil Nas X videos <laughs> and uh, TikToks. Yeah. And you're like, well, how could you spend the whole summer doing that? He doesn't have that many TikToks. Well, you know what? You just I've been watching them a lot. Rewatch row. them. You watch them very the same ones. <laughs> yeah, I find them very entertaining. And uh, so that keeps me up real late. And then I wake up real early in the morning <laughs> to listen to like industry baby drop, you know? Yeah, well, it's true. It's really hard when you need to listen to the new Lil Nas X single at six o'clock in the morning, Central European time. That's right. But anyway, um, in an unrelated note, this is the goal of podcast. Oh, wait, that's right. We're not actually just talking about what TikTok holes we went down last night. Got it. Um, so, yeah, it's funny. Um, I'm sure we could do a whole other pod, a people, spinoff. People love that, Chelsea. <laughs> Also, I hear it's like better if you have two pods instead of just one. Now having one is like I know having one pod is like having one car in California. (laughs) It's like only people who are really under duress live that way. Yeah, man, I'm in trouble. I know. What's our other podcast going to be? It's going to be called um, Lil Nas Lovers. Lil Nas X Lovers. (laughs) No, that's Um, not good. I mean, but like in that spirit for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But this is a large digression from our uh, intended topic, which is the small but important ingredient, rice. It's rice. And the reason why we're doing rice today is because we need to. We have to cover it. It's crucial to the Italian diet and to our larger panoply of Italian food products and beverage. But... It's also part of the greens that we've been trying to cover a little bit more comprehensively mm. over the uh, last uh, several episodes from our past season and, and within this new one. We've talked about uh, wheat and flour and, and other multigreens. Uh, we've talked about corn now, which uh, I think everybody really enjoyed. <laughs> I was glad to see. Uh, we have... Um, talked a little bit uh, about some other uh, adjacent products, uh, but rice is at the top of that list because for us particularly, we are always trying to remind everyone that pasta was not actually the staple starch for Italians for most of history. And it remains uh, less important in some areas of Italy within the diet than most people understand, even sometimes Italians themselves, thanks to good advertising from places like Barilla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it also finds its way into many more courses yes. than 
than pasta, which is firmly rooted, at least in the 21st century, in the primo category, okay. unless you happen to be at Bonchi and you order a fried lasagna okay. or fried uh Paste fagioli croquette, mm-hmm. but that's a rare occurrence. More likely, you'll find rice in the form of suppli or arancini, arancine, depending on where you are found geographically, where you're eating those rice croquettes. It could be risotto. Right. Um, it could be in a sweet. It could be in a soup. Um, it could be in a pudding. It could be where else could it be? In a cake. It could be in a cake. Yeah. It could be in a what else? I forget. Well, let's talk a little bit about rice in Italy, generally speaking, and then we'll get into the dishes made with it because, um, you know, we we always do a little bit of history, a little bit of context and a little bit of, you know, how people actually consume the product. But in this case, I actually agree with you, Katie, that the diversity of ways in which it can be consumed is going to take up more of our time talking than usual because, again— people tend to underappreciate the importance of its role in the diet broadly and in terms of its versatility. And uh, that's because rice actually does and can and continues to grow well on the Italian peninsula. And it's a lot easier. Speaking of things that we've mentioned in our other grain-centric episodes, it's an easy to transport grain and it stays in good shape for longer when it's dry before cooking. So it's also processed in a similar way to uh, wheat. Right. Um, That is the the parts that are rich in minerals Mm -hmm. and less and more susceptible to degrading the bran, the germ, uh, the chaff. Those can be removed to give you white rice, which is a shelf-stable product in the same way that white flour right. um, or or uh, wheat berries uh, that have been deprived of those uh, figures, uh, of those pieces, have uh, are able to be. Well, why then do people not associate Italy with rice, would you say? I think because rice is associated so intensely with other cultures, even in Europe, Spain, um, all over uh, the Asian continent, um, Africa. It's not something that is so distinctly Italian in the way that pasta is. Um, Also, the, you know, the, the, as you alluded to before, the very successful marketing campaigns on the part of uh, Barilla and others. Like Mm -hmm. I grew up watching uh, ads that said, Barilla, Italian for pasta or whatever <laughs> bullshit. And uh, pasta is just something that's like kind of simple and easy. Rice, I think, takes a little bit more skill to execute properly. I don't know. What's what's your yeah. feeling on this? No, I think that's an interesting point. I do think that um, as we'll get into the various ways you can prepare rice, it is true that even the most straightforward uh, ways of using it are um, more more challenging probably for the average home cook. Um, and yeah, we can debate that a little bit more when we when we talk about the ways one might prepare it traditionally. But um, I would add to what you've already said, the fact that rice is a northern Italian mm. specialty uh, because of where it grows easily in the Padania, in the, the flooded, swampy, marshy areas of central northern Italy. And it's a place where it can uh, naturally succeed there, but it's also that area of Italy is where um, long after rice cultivation began in Italy, um, which is uh, by the 
uh, late Middle Ages, early modern period. There, there's some cultivation and then it expands up from there. Um, but under the fascist regime, it becomes a an imperative. Um, it's a part of the Mussolini's top-down self-subsistence uh food program for Italy includes Italy producing a lot of rice, which it's uh, which would balance the lack of wheat in uh, on the peninsula. So making it uh, less necessary for them to rely on outside sources and importation. So that that northern central part of Italy makes a lot of rice and people eat a lot of rice there always. It would not seem unusual to any of them. Certainly a Milanese not having risotto in their everyday diet would be bizarre to them, right? But from the outside, Southern Italian cuisine has conquered the imagination, right? And it's a it's a mixture. It's not exactly what people eat in any part of the South or any or all the parts of the South. Right? It's a it's a kind of amalgamation, and then it's also blended with the place that it was exported to. So the U.S. If we're talking about that, but. Uh, Lombardy, the Veneto, and uh, the pieces of, of Piemonte and Emilia uh, that were uh, places that uh, eat a lot of rice and that where rice is a part of the uh, the diet and the and and firmly a part of the agricultural structure are not cuisines that were exported, especially to the U.S. with great success. Partly because not a lot of people from those regions went to the U.S. They went other places. They were mainly to Italian cities, exactly, right? Um, or other places within Europe. Um, the the huge amount of people who left the Veneto, the region that remains uh, that continues to hold the record for the highest number of emigrants from Italy, um, most of them went to other places in Europe first, and then trickled down into uh, to uh, the the rest of the globe, or trickled out into the rest of the globe, and and so they didn't. Bring... So why are the people of the Lega so against immigration oh, if they themselves are well yeah um, yeah the, the, <laughs> the backwards thinking of, of of Salvini et al the problems that we're looking at when we or not problems I should say the the inability to um, access this this particular element of Italian culinary culture is uh, uh, I think at least in in part attributed to the fact that um, people from these spaces didn't tend to go places with this food where we as Americans for example would have seen it a lot and and experienced it and um, as a result of that, it's a little more insular even within the peninsula because what we've talked about, you know, we've now been talking about our travels over the summer together and about people coming in and out, returning to the places their um, families were from and, uh, ha- you know, bringing their new experiences, mixing those things, right? That uh, that channel wasn't there. And, uh, and so the combination of the perception that rice is especially Asian and then maybe other things long before you get to an Italian interpretation of it, the fact that people don't have a lot of experience with it in the blended cuisines that resulted from migratory patterns, and finally the fact that it is more challenging to work with usually than pasta, especially in the whitewashed landscape of pasta that exists because there are many different kinds, even, even in the regular supermarket, you'll still find three or four different kinds of grains of rice that need to be prepared differently, whereas you really don't see that with pasta, I think, on average, right? You know, there are, of course, there are different 
different kinds still being made and different forms and different uh, intended preparations that should be treated differently. But it's not so radical. You know, the difference between basmati and uh, what we call basmati and uh, grains for risotto, probably the most famous of which is canaroli uh, or vialone nano, if uh, you're looking a little bit more specifically. They're, you know, you can't, you just can't make them the same way, right? I mean, <laughs> I've never Googled how to, how to cook pasta. And every time I cook rice, I Google, how do I <laughs> cook this rice? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, that's perfect, right? So it's all, <laughs> so it's all of those things together. And, but that is, you know, that belies so, so much of the history that I kind of flew through quickly because I don't want to spend too much time on it because I do want to get into the, the many, many different things that you can make with rice. But well, I, I also yeah. do, but like while yeah. we're talking about the history, let's just yeah. like, throw some numbers out there. Yeah. Uh, rice is domesticated in China about 13,000 years ago. <laughs> right. This is worth mentioning for sure. Yeah. 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 And, um, and it migrates very, very slowly. Like maybe the Romans knew about it. Uh, well, certainly the Romans knew about it, but it wasn't something that was really central to uh, the food culture. And Again, because the Romans had their breadbasket, right? They had Egypt making wheat for them, so they weren't in this urgent situation of having to balance it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And then it's probably in the 13th century or 14th century that there starts to become a, a true commercial enterprise uh, or set of commercial enterprises built around rice cultivation. And do we have people talking about what they're making with rice at this time? And is it only food? Is it also booze? Are they doing any types of fermented things? Yeah. So there's a there's a kind of smattering of stuff about this in the in the text that we often make reference to here in the early the late medieval and early modern texts are uh, definitely talking about making rice, using it. There's a famous uh, early modern treatise on the cultivation of rice is uh, dedicated to uh, Philip V. There's a, a bunch of different like treatises about how you can and process it that are floating around. And this is all coming. Yes, please. Um, who, sorry, the, in the back. Yeah. Who is Philip V? What's <laughs> early modern in this particular context? Okay, so the we'll do the uh, historiography parts first, which is um, when I say the Middle Ages, I'm talking, or or the medieval period, I'm talking. Those are those are those two terms are interchangeable. They refer broadly to the moment of the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which is fifth um, century A.D. four eighty three. Usually, people mark it as, but that's kind of arbitrary. Um, after that point, up until maybe around fourteen hundred, give or take. Now the these are really contested boundaries when it comes to periodization. But in Italy, we're talking about the medieval or Middle Ages. We say high medieval is um, somewhere 500 to 1,000, and then late medieval somewhere between 1,000 and 1,300-ish like that. And uh, by like 1150 to 1350 is really strongly like the late medieval period. That's my area of expertise. Mm -hmm. That's where Dante comes in. That's where we have the development of Italian vernacular language, the kind of language that people speak and write to each other. And that um, takes over the peninsula. That's a time where uh, the cultural identities that we now know are beginning to form more uh, firmly. It, we talked about in the episode focused on Matilda of Canossa and on the episode focused on Dante about how those historical moments affect who people think they are and the things that they eat as a result of that or that they feel close to. And um, then we get into 
the uh, Renaissance, we're looking at um, 1450 to around 1600 in Italy. Then we start getting a little nitty grittier oftentimes because we have like a counter-reformation moment. We have the years known as the Italian Wars starting in 1559 and um, ending uh, in uh, the modern period. Um, we have the early modern broadly, which is you know, also something from like 1500s into 1700s. We have the period that we know as the Enlightenment. That's probably 1700s. Everything gets a little more specific according to what you're interested in at that point. Also, are you thinking about a timeline that looks at philosophy? Are you thinking about a timeline that looks at political boundaries? Are you thinking of a timeline that looks at cultural distinctions? So so it's Philip V of Spain, though, from the 1740s or so? To your second point... The question of who Philip V is, king of Spain, relevant to Italy, because at this point, Spain has dominion over uh, a large swath of the southern part of the peninsula and uh, the islands surrounding them. So um, we've talked about this lots of uh, lots of times. We have to remember that from that early modern moment, so like, you know, Renaissance time uh, as into the uh, modern period. There's the straddling of, you know, around from 1500s, 1600s. The transition there is from a frag, a deeply fragmented peninsula towards something that begins to cohere a little bit better by virtue of the fact that the South is almost entirely under Spanish rule. The North is split into some more pieces, but that are um, all uh, with points of reference to kind of larger imperial uh, seats elsewhere in continental Europe. This is also the time where the Vatican states become stronger, um, the high Renaissance. There's a lot of wealth coming in there and, and military power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this treatise... <laughs> so back to a treatise on rice written tr- in Italian right, for the Spanish yeah, king. Yes. Exactly. That's crazy. Why did they do yeah. that? Well, so the reason why I point that out and why you'll hear that if people... <laughs> say you're at a lecture on the history of rice on the Italian peninsula. People will point, make a point about this because um, when people write a book at this time at, or collect information at this time and dedicate it to someone, right, it's, it gives us two pieces of evidence. One, it's um, what people thought was valuable within their space that they could then give to a royal patron who might give something back to them, right? Um, But also their own understanding of a value system. So this person... You know, uh, when we talk about the the Libre de Coquina, the uh, late medieval cookbook produced at the court of Frederick II that I'm always referring to and that I do a lot of research on, um, what I look for there is not just the gesture of uh, creating the text, which in itself has value. Somebody said, you know what, these things are worth writing down. And, and so I know that they thought that those had value, right? But then also within that, then these things are what I want other people to know about from my space or from my culture or from my language. And these are the things that I think have some kind of value that I could trade back for. That by giving you this, you, you know, will want, you'll want it enough to say, oh, here is something for you, right? Mm. So the you know, a treatise on the cultivation of rice from an Italian to Spanish king is a 
a market for us that says people at that time are already saying to themselves, and so, you know, Philip the V is king in the early part of the 18th century, so early 1700s. So people at that time are saying rice could be something really valuable. We should all learn how to cultivate it properly, and then we should use it, and here are all the ways you might use it. So interesting. But also kind of fascinating that when you think of Spanish cuisine on in the Iberian Peninsula, yeah. of course, many, many rice dishes come to mind. Paella is the most but famous, yeah. but, <laughs> but there are many, many others, some simply called like arroz or arroces. Yeah. Yeah. And in the former Spanish dominion in South Italy, the, the dish that comes to mind is the arancino or arancina, which is kind of made in like that risotato way um, where you're really uh, maximizing the starchiness of the concoction by toasting the rice and then adding warm liquid slowly and making a creamy, almost uh, a creamy substance from its own sauce. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a perfect example also of seeing how the food migrated in different directions and was used in different ways, but analogously, right? Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, absolutely. So fascinating. And yet there aren't a zillion and one Southern Italian rice recipes that come to mind. Maybe some rice flowers used in some uh, sweets down in Sicily. Yeah, yeah. But generally speaking, and, and I think, you know, we haven't defined really arancino or arancina yet, but it's one of the most famous products of Italy, though specifically from the south. And it's often a softball sized, yeah. uh, sometimes larger, and generally a saffron tinted uh, rice that uh, has been uh, sort of packed around a heart of meat sauce with peas. There are other fillings and combinations, but that's the sort of classic yeah. one. And and if it's not a round softball shape, then it's kind of pyramidal, so it can set, sit on like a mobile cart without rolling all over the place. <laughs> so cute. They are so cute and so, so delicious. They're so delicious. They are uh, the the most calories you can have in a single dish it's in the world. It's <laughs> amazing how much they pack in. It's truly, it's truly a feat. Yeah. You think lasagna's heavy? Yeah, I know. Try again. (laughs) Wrong. (laughs) Let me give you a rice ball. Um, So speaking of that, so that's a perfect transition into the the way people do eat the rice because we're actually starting at the bottom, right? Mm And we'll get to the top. So if the north center of Italy, especially north in general, is associated with the production of rice— it's not that other places within Italy don't use rice. Um, arancine or arancini, if you're um, on the eastern side of Sicily, uh, are very popular ways of uh, of seeing or common ways of, of seeing rice in usage in the south. Uh, you don't only see them in Sicily. Rice balls are made in other places across the south also. Mm-hmm. Sicily is just most famous for it. Um, speaking of another place you might see a rice ball is in Naples or surrounding Campania. And that's a place where you'll see all kinds of stuff going on with rice. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of my favorite versions is uh, basically like a rice pudding cake yeah. <laughs> made with spices, cinnamon. It's like very dairy rich. It's kind of the rice version of the pastiera. And there are some pastiera recipes that call for rice instead of wheat berries. Yeah. And so you have this especially springtime, Easter time constellation of uh, grain enriched dishes that uh, some of which include rizzo. Yeah, I love. I actually really um, love the texture of those even more than the um, 
kind of classic Neapolitan iteration. So uh, I'm a big fan for sure. I forgot about eggs. There's eggs in, in those cakes. There's always <laughs> eggs. There's got to be eggs because it's springtime. So that's right. Chicks hatching. And also Jesus. And Jesus hatching. Mm-hmm. Um, Sartu. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about the like, um, what would you call it? Like a casserole of some of yeah, sorts? Yeah, it's so, What's the well, so what I, it came to mind because we were thinking about, you know, these dishes that sort of recall all the possible places that rice took off in or had relationships with, uh, or that Italian dishes have relationships with as a result. And it has, yeah, it's kind of like a casserole, but it has a crispy, um, exterior that's sort of uh the way that you get the crunch on uh on persian rice right mm-hmm. um or on uh, spanish rice in a in a paella uh preparation and uh it's yeah it's just kind of like uh a, a, an upside down bowl of deliciousness kind of yeah. covered in rice yeah totally is that fair <laughs> sartu also like people in naples always say that sartu di riso is one of the like french dishes but I'm not super convinced that that's necessarily the case. But it's like, so imagine, fuck, this is so, this is also another calorie bomb. This is it's, basically an arancini, but it's a big, like, bunch cake. Gen- yeah, but it's like, and then, it, because it, it usually gets served with other stuff all around it mm. also. So it's just like, so, it's so intense. I, I love it, though. It's, it's really so good. good. So yeah. it's rice. Yeah. Peas. Mm-hmm. Ragu. Right. Uh, cubes of pancetta. Definitely mushrooms yeah uh cheese obviously cheese provola as yeah. well as yeah fucking mozzarella bro oh, yeah no it's it's everything's <laughs> happening yeah meatballs mm-hmm. each, hard-boiled yeah. eggs and sometimes chicken livers if you're lucky yeah that's the um oh wow it's so good it's um, so good okay so if <laughs> If it's you like want, t- I guess it's like timbalo, but with rice on that exactly with crispy rice on the outside exactly yeah. now this is also a little bit it's not the lightest rice dish that I've ever encountered, <laughs> but it's lighter than Sartu di Rizzo. Uh-huh. And it's the um, uh, potatoes, rice, and mussels that are served around uh, Bari, yeah. and especially in Puglia. Mm. And what are the other cool-ass rice things down there? God, there's so many. I mean, I think it's also... Um, worth mentioning, even though our listeners won't won't be surprised to hear this, that, of course, it was the kind of thing that would get thrown in a soup of, you know, the kinds of minestre maritate that you sometimes talk about, Katie, or Mm -hmm. that are um, just, you know, putting together things that were available with things that are just hanging around or actual, you know, or more conscientious uh, preparations where you are putting the rice in because it will uh, have the kind of texture that you want after Mm. having been cooked at length with a developing uh, broth or um, uh, vegetable stew. Sure. So, you know, we've got the southern incarnations of rice dishes uh, we're sitting in Rome. Yeah. We're not far from... Ever a had a rice that, in Rome? <laughs> <laughs> you ever had Roman rice? Uh, so imagine an egg-shaped parcel instead of a softball-sized one um, that is essentially like the the, the rice is cooked in a meat sauce, so- in, in a tomato sauce, traditionally with various types of meat. The old school like Adaboni recipe from 1900 mm. has like sausage and beef and chicken livers. Now, sometimes you'll just find like barely a hint of meat. 
Um, sometimes there's no meat uh, in the the sauce with the rice at all, which caters to a growing vegetarian mm. community here. And then the rice is cooled and packed around a piece of mozzarella. And then the whole parcel is breaded and fried. And then as the uh, as the parcel fries, the mozzarella inside melts. So when you break it open, you got that nice cheese pull. As the, you're talking about this, mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm. Why don't I have this every single day while I'm here? Um, there is literally a place called Il Supplé, yeah. which is honestly, it's in trust every. It's not yeah. the best, but it's, no, it's always open. It's, yeah, it's always <laughs> open, and it's. I mean, it's. They fine. do a good job for a place that's basically, yeah, just turning yeah. them out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, other spots that are really good. Um, Trapizino does a really good yeah. uh, supplé. Obviously, Panificio Bonchi delicious but then if you go to Sbanco, Sforno, Tonda, uh, 180 Grammi mm. all of the great pizzerias in town also do a good suple as a an antipasto before the pizza it's you know when you come to Rome the first time and you find out that the, the, the antipasto before pizza is fried balls of cheese and meat and other things you're just like, why did, why did anybody ever leave? It's yeah. <laughs> why didn't I come here before? Why didn't exactly. I pop a Lipitor before what, dinner? Exactly. Also that. <laughs> um, I don't know if that's how Lipitor works. I don't think you can pop a Lipitor <laughs> probably, and then cancel. Probably consult with your physician before taking yeah. any advice you this hear. Is on, this not is... a medical podcast. <laughs> um, I also am not, I do not know if I have higher low cholesterol <laughs> because I truly will not check. So don't, don't listen to me. All right. Um, well, so speaking of getting higher, let's keep moving. We're beyond Rome. We had our souple. We're getting into the wider world of of the of rice. You know where it's at, the heart of the rice production in Italy, uh, traditionally and historically. So, where people are growing rice, how are they eating the rice? I mean, in my experience, and my rice experience in Italy really is limited to South Central. Uh, Italy and Sicily, I think risotto is the main way that it's being done. And risotto is both the result of a recipe as well as a way to prepare rice. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't know if we have statistics on this, but I would say certainly anecdotally, yes, risotto is the way. Risotto takes the place of the a classic pasta dish of any region that we've traveled through so far. It's the thing that people are going to be uh, most uh, keen to share with you, most proud of, to, of having a specific recipe for. Risotto-like pasta is going to be dressed with a variety of condiments that are reflective of the specific space that it's from so that you'll see risotto, um, for example, around like Lake Garda on the Veneto and Trentino side. There's uh, frequently risotto al vino with the wine made from that area. Um, Risotto made with uh, sausage and cabbage from the northern parts of of Lombardy that are uh, colder and more mountainous. Risotto made with mushrooms from areas of Piedmont that are famous for that. Um, And of course, I mean, there are absolutely hundreds of of iterations, but uh, those are just a few that kind of capture the the possibilities. Um, The risotto made there is going to be done in a a much uh, looser style than you'll see in the South uh, when they cook their rice 
based primi, they'll do it a little more ristretto and uh, the same way as their pasta is more al dente. The rice in, in the risotto from the north of Italy is somewhere in between a soup and uh, something that you can actually stand your fork into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So also the, like, the Bologna area, I think, has some Budino di Rizzo vibes going yeah. on. So this is not, we've left the risotto uh, <laughs> yeah, territory yeah. and yeah, now yeah. we're firmly no, in a pasticceria. Yeah. yeah. Which is another mm-hmm. kind of like, rice pudding's the wrong word, but like a, a set uh, rice sweet yeah. um, that is spiced and kind it's like got a dairy. Like tartlet, I guess. Exactly. That then has, yeah, rice cream, rice custard in it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah rice mm-hmm. custard is a good, is a good call. Yeah. Um, rice in, I feel like in in Venice, you get some seafood things going on. But on that note, every single like generic seafood place in all of Italy will do risotto alla pescatora. Yeah. Which is rarely exceptional, but it is very ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. And it features, I, I, in most places, I would assume just like the pre-chopped like frozen seafood chucked into a badly prepared rice. But there are some places where you can get really good versions of it, like a quality... I'm thinking of a, a Tempio di Easy Day in Rome yeah. or a, a great uh, seafood spot in uh, in Senegalia or some uh, food-driven seaside town. You can find a nice risotto la pescatora, which means fisherman style, so not really rooted in any uh, specific geography any longer, but generally like what you have by the sea if you need rice and not pasta. Right, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think... Uh, not that we're going to get into this part of it. In fact, we should probably come to a conclusion of, of our uh, rice dreams shortly because we have already been talking for some time. But I will say that when we talk about a risotto with with a mixed fish, for example, it brings me to an important point that connects to our discussion of cooking rice, which is that in order to prepare risotto properly, you need to understand what's going to go in it and when it must be added, which is unlike, I think, most other Italian dishes in general, because there's such an idea of either a kind of separation and purity of ingredients or something that gets cooked together forever, right? So you have like a stew, you know, looking at... um, around, you know, central Italy, we'll have all kinds of meat stews where you throw everything in and you just cook it forever, right? Mm-hmm. You just let it go and go and go. Or something is barely touched, right? A piece of fish on the grill very quickly, uh, a la piastra, you know, these kinds of really um, simple, quick preparations, a squeeze of lemon, a sprinkling of salt done. A little olive oil. A drizzle of olive oil. Um, you know, with meat, again, same thing, right? So, um we and then with pasta, you do the condimento and you do the pasta, and then you give them right one minute to mm. join together in the in the pan, usually to finish. Um, risotto instead is a multi-step process. It's something that is sort of un, unintuitive to an Italian, I think, mm. if you don't grow up in a place where you're making it, because you need to cook the rice along. Uh, the rice guides you, right? You have the kind of zero to 19 minutes of uh, finished risotto, um, but you're keeping it at a high heat. You're adding liquid as it goes along. And then whatever other... Hot liquid too. Hot liquid. And then 
whatever other components are going to go in there need to be added at a precise moment according to how they need to be cooked. So um, you don't just get the rice there and then toss everything in, right? You add your, let's say, if you have uh, meat going into it, uh, sausage, you might need to actually pre-cook that to render some fat, then but not too much, and then add it at, you know, call it the two or three minute out mark so that it finishes mm. as the rice is also finishing. And then, of course, you have the mantecare, right? You have the, the final addition of cheese, uh, parmigiano usually, although, again, that depends a little bit on the preparation on the region, needs to happen just as the rice is finishing and needs to be balanced with the amount of liquid at that point so that you continue to achieve the consistency you want. So it's, in some ways, I feel like risotto is one of these dishes that is maybe also underappreciated mm. in as much as it does require a special kind of hand at the stove also. Yeah, it's a it's definitely an experience and technique driven yeah. driven dish and that's why I don't really make it that much. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we talked about rice today anyway, Katie, because this was one of those episodes where I kind of felt like this is going to be less exciting than I want it to be, that I, it sometimes feels like it's going to be hard to communicate to people listening why we want to talk about something like this. But I think we kind of jazzed it up a little bit with Sartu at least, right? So now you're feeling like rice <laughs> now, instead yeah, of yeah. rice. Yeah, instead of rice, period. Yeah. <laughs> Tiela or Tiedja in, oh, in yes. Salento. We're going to leave on a high note. Oh, my God, yes. Which is an, another delicious <laughs> yes. cast. No, we're not going to leave on a high lo- high note. Oh, where are we we're going? We're going to talk about the Tiela, and then we're going to talk about a low note. Okay. Uh, the Tiela, delicious um, rice casserole. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about insalata di riso, oh. which we neglected. Oh, my God. Okay, wow. we're gonna, let's do a rapid fire <laughs> of the back, back and forth. So insalata di riso is summer rice salad. Yeah. The ingle- ingredients include... Green olives from a can. Uh, cubes of Swiss cheese. Uh, cubes of a uh, hot dog sometimes. Oh, hell yeah, yeah. hot dog. Canned yeah. corn. Oh, definitely canned corn. You can't, you can't have it without canned corn. Um, sometimes uh, tomatoes, uh, mealy ones that are just... Sotto acetti, so basically chopped up pickles. Random, yeah. And that can also include kind of other stuff. Sometimes it's like a sotto that has a little cauliflower in it also. Um, Pearl onions. Definitely, right. Pearl onions very common, yeah. Uh, are we missing any? Randos? The most important ingredient. A whole tube of mayonnaise. Oh, right. Sure, yeah. I mean, yeah, sometimes... It's well, yeah. It's 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 not good, but then it's not good, but it's good. But it's good, yeah. It's, it's not good, but I like it. That's yeah. more that's more appropriate. <laughs> yeah, it's like after the, a long day at the beach, and you're like hungry, but you don't want to make dinner or anything, and you just kind of want a cold beer and to like put some food in your stomach. Mm. Something about insalata di riso. We forgot the most important one after mayo. What? Tuna fish. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to have that. I mean, it could be it, it could be any combination of these mm-hmm. things. But um, yeah, it, it could go in a lot of directions. It could go really off the rails. I'm into it. And I actually yeah. had it the other day. Yeah. I bought it. I physically, <laughs> actively sought it out. I, I was mean, like, any alimentari will have it. Oh, yeah. It's always, for sure. It's always behind the bancone, yeah. For yeah. sure. Yeah. And I, I ate the shit out of it. I loved yeah. it so much. Yeah. 
So shout out to Insulat di Riza for being the grossest thing in Italy that still that still tastes good. Well, I mean, you know what? High-low. That's it. We nailed it at the end there, Katie. Let's let people go experiment with rice and hot dogs, mayonnaise, and tuna if that's what they want, or maybe something a little bit more sophisticated. And while they do that, they can also follow us on social media. You're at Katie Parla. See. I am at Dr. Caligari's cabinet. And uh, while you're there, don't forget to click on the link to our Patreon. Yeah. Patreon.com backslash Golapod support your girls. So we'll make more delicious pods in your ears <laughs> with foods and drinks and histories. All of that and more coming soon. Grazie e arrivederci. Ciao. <laughs> we love our supporters and Hope you become one too by visiting patreon.com backslash golapod. And now is the special shout out time for those who support us at the Giotti level. So thanks so much to Gabe Del Virginia of New York City and our buddies Allison and Gino Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester. We also have our wonderful friend Leah at Semolino Artisanal Pasta in Pasadena, California, and Bobby Mazzullo at Mazzullo Pizzeria in Sacramento. Join us for more content, early access, special discounts, and news of everything Gola in advance on patreon.com backslash golapod.